0: Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious.
1: A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. And a very happy almost Thanksgiving to you. If you have a taste for life, well, then this is your show because it's my goal every weekend to satisfy your cravings. This show is an easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment, so stay tuned all throughout the hour because we're going way beyond mere eating and drinking. I'm always on a mission to find new experiences, the most emerging trends, the best experts to bring you insight into the wonderful wide world of food. And this is cooking and entertaining from a chef's point of view. Now, we've covered Thanksgiving over the past many weeks, and I hope that you're menu is planned and your shopping is done. But if you happen to have missed me talking about a lesson in mashed potatoes a couple of weeks ago, I am delighted to tell you that my recipe for creme fresh mashed potatoes is posted now at chefjamie.com. It's a recipe I learned to make from Wolfgang Puck when I was 16 years old. The roasted garlic flavor infused is just divine and I love sharing the recipe. So, a lesson in mashed potatoes at chefjamie.com. Now, if you happen to miss last weekend's show, where I talked about my flat out turkey, that's just flat out great, really. It roasts in an hour and 15 minutes. It's genius. Yes. And I'm sharing the recipe as well at chefjamie.com, where you'll find a bevy of Thanksgiving inspiration. Now, you'll find daily inspiration on social at chefjamie.gwen. So, please become a friend and a fan. And if you happen to have missed a show, you'll find podcasts in their entirety on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Now, coming up this hour, uh, we have lots of fabulous food in your radio. You know, I happen to love the winter season. And from hearty root vegetables to bright, sweet citrus, winter produce really does offer a surprising range of flavors. So Robert Schuler, our resident produce guru, is stopping by to give us the best of the season for winter, from chestnuts to persimmons, oh, to butterscotch pears. You won't want to miss it. Also, who doesn't love pizza, right? Well, these two gentlemen are truly passionate pizza lovers. The brothers, Elliot, have traveled the world over for the best pizza. And they are sharing what is uh, a top-notch, the best I've tasted, Neapolitan pizza dough recipe. And... I can't wait for them to share it with you. Wait till you see their new cookbook. Uh, It is filled with interviews with pizza greats and pizza facts and world records and then 30 plus recipes of pizzas that they have mastered from around the world. It's pizza pie fun, really. And since pizza is happiness, you won't want to miss the conversation coming up with James Elliott. So please stay tuned. But first let's get this party started, shall we? So let me start with a story, if I may. As a little girl, my mom would take from the oven a heavy cast iron skillet with this glorious spectacle within, and I would ooh and ah in excitement. We call it the making of a chef. It it looked like a puffy crater with a sweet aroma, and It's called a Dutch baby and it demands immediate before it deflates eating. She used to top it with sliced strawberries or a spoonful of blueberry jam and she would make it snow with a shower of confectioner's sugar and it holds a very dear place in my heart. And when the weather turns cold... I think about making a Dutch baby, maybe because it is my childhood and very comforting or because it feels like a special breakfast or because you need a holiday excuse to pull out all the stops. But no matter the reason, I think we should dish about it because by the end of this tutorial, you will hopefully be running to the kitchen, pulling out the eggs and planning breakfast for breakfast or breakfast for lunch or maybe even breakfast for dinner. So even though it's called a pancake, this German version bears very little resemblance to the fluffy flapjacks that we're used to on this side of the Atlantic. German pancakes or Dutch babies are made of what is a non-leavened crepe-like batter. And often there's usually some sort of fruit. It's usually apples, but anything works. And it's cooked in a skillet. And um, then it rises, uh, finished at a, a high heat to bake it quickly. What you end up with is a smooth and custardy, sort of klafuti like pancake that is called often a German apple pancake, the caramelized fruit. And it's hard to beat, I have to say, as a really brilliant breakfast, as a very easy last-minute dessert. But my favorite is to serve it at brunch because everyone gathers in the kitchen and maybe they're holding a mimosa or sipping an espresso, And I like to pull it out of the oven and get those oohs and ahs that I remember giving my mom as a kid. I'll drizzle it with maple syrup. I'll put a crispy slab of smoky bacon on the side to modernize it and brunch is ready. Now, it's an old recipe um, and its history skews very, very sweet. The origin of a Dutch baby is Dutch, but the dish's popularity in America is due in part to Sunset Magazine articles that date back more than 50 years. So, uh, thank you to Sunset Magazine for always being on the cutting edge. Most batters for a Dutch baby, by the way, use all milk, but sometimes I like to incorporate yogurt or Greek yogurt specifically, even sour cream into mine because I love the tang that offsets the sweetness and I love that rich flavor that comes through. Now, my batter ingredients come together in a blender. I love my appliances. You know that. And it really is very simple to make. It's like culinary science where you look like this great gastronomic hero, but you did very little work. So you pour this smooth blender batter into a hot buttered pan. And the hotter the pan, the better. And it shimmers and it bubbles until the moment of liftoff. And then it starts to curl at the edges that rise above the rim of the pan. And it's accompanied by an occasional mogul at the center here or there. The Dutch baby, though, is very versatile. And you can keep it sweet or you can step towards savory. In other words, I say have your way with it. You could spice up the batter using pumpkin pie spice and infuse everyone's favorite seasonal addiction. You could use the pancake as a vessel for fresh vegetables or greens. You could melt thin rafts of cheese on it and cut it into snack wedges. There are but a few rules to keep in mind though. The batter for a Dutch baby should be very well blended because any added bits have weight and they impede the rise. Also, the pan and the fat must be hot. Hot, hot, hot. And let me repeat, hot. Because that cast iron pan that my mom always used, I remember she heated in the oven as the oven came up to temperature. And that's really the secret here is that a a smoking hot pan creates the rise. Now, a Dutch baby is easy, as I said, but it's spectacular and If you haven't made a Dutch baby in a while or you've never made one before or it is your masterpiece, it is time to rediscover the magic, don't you think? Or give it a go. So you want to use an oven-proof skillet or a pie plate, but a cast iron skillet is the best because it does get very hot and because it retains its heat. And the true secret to the ultimate Dutch baby, are you listening, is that the eggs need to be very close, if not at room temperature, in order to maximize their rise in the oven. So here is my best quick technique to master the German pancake. I take the eggs and I put them in a bowl of warm water from the sink for about five minutes. And it takes just about that long for them to come up to room temperature because I'm impatient or I might not have remembered and I didn't take them from the fridge early enough. Once you've left the eggs in warm tap water for five minutes, pull them out, dry them off, crack them, and make your batter. And know that when you deliver a Dutch baby to the table, you are going to be a culinary hero. My mom was and still is because of her Dutch baby and for so many other reasons. And who doesn't want to be a gastronomic god or goddess? Now, really? I will gladly share my best Dutch baby recipe with you. It's a blender Dutch baby, as I call it. It's the bonus recipe this week. So please email me. You can email me if you just want to dish too. I'll share Thanksgiving recipes galore and holiday sweets inspiration. Uh, Just send me a note, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com and we can dish about it. The Dutch baby recipe is yours. Okay, don't go away. Don't touch that dial. Oh, this is truly going to be scintillating conversation. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with lots more scrumptious goodness right after this. Okay, prepare yourself because we're about to get fresh. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. Think tasty, tangy, tart, sweet, and delicious. And you'll think Melissa's produce, providing quality produce to chefs and restaurants and markets for almost 30 years now. I am so proud and very grateful to have Melissa's Produce as a partner on this show since our inception 18 years ago, and I'm proud to call them my produce family. Their products just keep getting sweeter. Robert Schuler is our resident produce guru and the director of All Things Fresh and Delicious for Melissa's, and he is here to increase your fruit and veggie knowledge for the holiday season, of course. I'm glad to have you back, Robert, and I hope that you and your family are healthy and well. Thank you, Jamie. It's yes. glad to be back. And I'm so glad. Um, okay, Robert, first off, uh, tell us what is trending in the produce world as winter progresses? The, the hottest topic.
2: Um, right now, it is those butterscotch pears that mm. Melissa's is really known for. Yes. The butterscotch pear is a premium, large size pear that comes actually out of South Korea every year. Every year from November until March, we get these large gold um, pears. Mm-hmm. Even though they're in the shape of an apple, that are resembling a, somewhat like um, an Asian pear. If you're familiar with those in the marketplace, they're they're extremely crisp.
1: Mm. Um, they're so crunchy. They
0: have,
2: uh, very crunchy. Yeah. Um, And they're the shape um, of an apple, but it is in the pear family. The coolest thing about these butterscotch pears is when you cut them, you can put them out on a fruit plate or a platter because they do not oxidize like pears and most apples
1: do. Right, what I think is genius is not only the juiciness. They are the the kind of fruit that makes your your mouth salivate on its own. I love these butterscotch pears and they have the crunch so you get the textural satisfaction. They have this sweet, lovely flavor, but as you said, they never turn brown. So slice them and put them on a cheese board, right? For, you know, before your holiday feast and have peace of mind that you can come back to the cheese board for dessert. And the pear is still pure ivory white and beautiful. Um, I have been known to cook with them as well. Robert, I've sauteed them like with mm-hmm. a pork chop in place of an apple and they keep their texture. I, I like to eat them out of hand mostly uh, and they're oversized, right? They're like, it's like a butterscotch pear for two. Yes.
2: They're, they're, <laughs> they're much big. larger than the regular size apple. Yes. Pear. So yeah. You get a lot more bang for your buck when you cut it open and enjoy it with your family. Yeah.
1: They're delicious though. And you can, um, you can core them and stuff them and do, uh, like a roasted pear, um they're just they're just so delicious um okay let's and by the way available now right an exclusive from melissa's yes through yes, march through march okay good more pears for me please um let's talk potatoes the varieties are ever growing you know that um we're planning for hanukkah latkes and you mm-hmm. know that dutch yellow potatoes delight me they just do
2: yes yeah the dutch yellow potato is uh, melissa's signature baby variety Mm -hmm. Uh, it's one of our number one selling items we actually even have a cookbook for it (laughs) those are these small uh gold potatoes they're gold on the outside and they're gold yellow on the inside um the neat thing about them is you know when you're working with a lot of different varieties of baby potatoes have you ever noticed when you put them on the counter or put them in your fridge or whatever if it gets a little bit of the sunlight um or the, 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 the light inside your refrigerator, it will, after a while, it can turn the skin uh, green. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the potatoes are no no longer good. Right. The neat thing about the de- yellow potatoes is that it never happens. Huh. So they don't go bad, no matter if you keep them on your counter for a few days or even for a few weeks. But the neat thing about them is that they're buttery-tasting. A lot of people mistake them for what they call Baby Yukon Gold Potatoes. But there's no such thing as Baby Yukon Gold Potatoes. It's actually Dutch Yellow.
1: It's so interesting. And, you know, I have to tell you, I never realized in in all my years of loving Melissa's Dutch Yellow that they don't change. They don't go bad, essentially, like you talked about. Um, A very unique variety. My favorite thing to do is smash potatoes with them. Although I use them for everything. I'll roast them with rosemary sprigs and garlic cloves, olive oil, salt pepper on a sheet pan. Um, We use them as breakfast potatoes and as dinner potatoes. Um, I'll use them for mashed, but I love them smashed. So I uh, boil them, And when they're uh, tender and, you know, with a paring knife, uh, tender through, I'll cool them just a bit. And then I take the back of a glass and smash each one down and then um, bake them. I, I sort of douse them in olive oil a good amount and do chopped garlic, lemon zest and parsley and then bake them on a baking sheet till they're crispy on both sides Those have to be the best potatoes, Robert. Ever. It's they're like craveable. I think about them in my sleep.
2: Yeah, and in fact, if you're a a big fan of the red skin varieties, Mm -hmm. direct cousin of the Dutch yellow potato is the Ruby Gold potato.
1: Yes, I love that one too.
2: All in all, a Dutch red potato. Yeah. The same, you know, the same. Uh, buttery flavor interior, but it has a red skin instead. And so just these are two great uh, potatoes to use in in cooking for the holiday season coming up.
1: Yeah, of course. And they do make the best latkes, hands down, period. And last but not least, it is chestnut season. Which you know I rejoice in. So whether it's chestnut puree or chestnuts in stuffing or uh, chestnuts surrounding a big beautiful roast, or um, I-, I crisp them up and I call them chestnut croutons and I throw them into a winter green salad, there is something so wonderful about them. And th- again, the convenience of Melissa's chestnuts do tell.
2: Yes, just like our steamed beets and our steamed um, lentils that's in our line. We also do uh, a a, um, steamed and peeled chestnut ready to go out of the package. You don't have to do any of the extra cooking at Mm -hmm. this time. Chestnut is very resemblance of the holiday season and we'll have them fresh all the way through the end of the year. However, the steamed and peeled we actually offer on a year-round basis, so and it's a it's, it's seasonal favorite for all the holidays throughout December. Especially.
1: Yeah, for sure, because I love chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Don't get me wrong, but to have to peel them all uh, is is cumbersome. There's no doubt it's tedious, and so I go to the package. Uh, And as I said, I I use them in everything. Um, I love the winter offerings from Melissa's, Robert. And I thank you for uh, sharing the highlights and giving us the sweetest and the best, as always. Um, I wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season. And here's to uh, a sweet Melissa's 2021. May it be a better year. Well, thank you, Jamie. Happy holidays to you, too. Thank you, kindly. Finding beautiful, unique, and exceptional quality produce is a snap when it comes to Melissa's. At chefjamie.com, you'll find lots of inspiration. At melissas.com, you can order your produce direct to your door. Um, The weekly Melissa's Produce Pick can be heard here on the radio, of course. So you'll always know what's in season. Uh, And of course, what a wonderful way to send a fresh gift of produce to someone you love this holiday season. Go to melissas.com to learn more and brush up on your produce knowledge as well. Uh, Robert, talk to you soon. Thank you. You again. There is lots more delicious conversation to feed your soul. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Rejoice. We're having pizza. I love passionate food lovers, as you know, and the Brothers Elliot are a glorious representation of passionate pizza lovers. Everyone loves pizza, right? Maybe not more than these two guys. Pizza is the savor of parties and empty fridges. It's come to the rescue of the human race more times than we can count. So if you can't imagine your world without dough, cheese, and tomato, or you know a die-hard pizza lover, well, then you have to get this cookbook into your hands. All things pizza are here, from its history and family tree to world-famous pizzerias, even an exploration into the pizza variants we love to hate. Yes, I am a pineapple pizza lover. They're called the Pizza Pilgrims, Tom and James Elliott, and they have spent years researching the best pizza that the world has to offer and now producing their own pizzas across 16 stellar restaurants in the UK. The book is called Pizza, and you have to hold the book flat. The artistry, the design, the recipes, the inspiration Really, truly amazing and just released. And James Elliott is here to dish. And I am delighted. Hi, James. So glad to have you.
0: Jamie, that was <laughs> beautiful. You, you should have written the book.
1: No, no, no. Please. That was well-deserved. Uh, <laughs> very well-deserved. And all very true. Um, I love your story, I have to tell you, I mean, I love passionate foodies and I, I mentioned that, but the truth is you're like a, is there something bigger than addicted to pizza as a phrase? Uh, mm.
0: We are addicted to pizza. We've been referring to this book as our love letter to pizza. Yes. But a pizza is our life. Pizza has given us our life. The dinner I'm putting on the table tonight will be provided by... So yeah, I'm obsessed with pizza.
1: Yeah, and and I love that. I love the obsession. I love too that you ditched your job in 2012 and you went on a pizza pilgrimage, right? Tell us what inspired the journey, how it all came about.
0: So it's me and my brother and uh, we had uh, a little little financial crisis in 2008, uh, which didn't make for a very uh, hospitable job market. So me and my brother, I was working in television production, and my brother was working in advertising. Um, and we always say that we were an incredible combination of being terrible at our jobs and hating them. <laughs> uh, so it was a question of just pull the ripcord. How the hell do we get out of this business yeah. and in out of our normal jobs and working for the man and start something on our own? And we knew it was going to be food. Um, but... This, this thing had just happened in the UK, the street food movement. I think it started over in LA in the US and then it came over to England and it was just the biggest thing to happen to the food industry in the UK that we'd seen in 10, 15 years. Yes. And suddenly we could start a business on a credit card, <laughs> to, <laughs> to put it bluntly. So we started the business by A, quitting our jobs, and then we flew down to Sicily uh, mm. and we drove a little tuk-tuk van, a little three-wheeled Italian van, Um, all the way from Sicily back to London on a pizza pilgrimage, and then when we got back to London, that took six weeks because the the van goes 12 miles an hour, top speed. It went three miles an hour as we went over the Alps. Uh, And then we got back to, you know, had an amazing six weeks learning everything we could about pizza and Italy and the culture and the food and the people, and we got back and we put a wood-fired pizza oven in the back of a little tip and we set up right in the middle of London in a place called Soho, which is kind of like the beating heart of London, mm-hmm. and we set up a market stall selling pizza, Neapolitan style pizza.
1: You became you became a trend. I mean, you were trending literally in in sharing this Neapolitan style pizza. You moved the needle on the street food movement in London, from what I understand.
0: We were the, we were one of the first people to really do quality, neo- proper Neapolitan pizza in London, hmm. um, and we were just this little van, and we we just did everything we did the market during the daytime and so five days a week we we're feeding all the kind of the people of Soho and then every night we were doing an event or we were doing a music festival at the weekend or we were doing weddings, funerals, mm-hmm. bar mitzvahs everywhere that would have us um, and we just kind of honed our craft I suppose over the sort of two years we were a street food band and then yeah we were it was just as tw- Twitter was kind of kicking off and I don't think Instagram was on the scene yet, but, you know, we we gathered a following, and off the back of that, we managed to open our first restaurant just around the corner from the Market Store in Soho, mm-hmm. um, and then what, that was 2013, and it's just been a mad, unexpected adventure since then, so, yeah, as you said, we've got sort of 16 restaurants across London now.
1: Yeah, congratulations um, so, to you. What an extraordinary success story, I, built on gumption and passion and dedication how did you know that it would be food that you ventured into were you both very food centric were you dining in the london food scene and and very conscious of what was going on in the food world so we grew up
0: in a pub uh So that's
1: a good place to grow up.
0: My dad was a wine merchant and my mum was working in antique dealing. And then they went, should we own a pub? And so they bought a pub. And so our first sort of five years of our life, no, that's not true. First 10 years of our life, we're growing up in a local village country pub in, in the UK.
1: That sounds fabulous. So we kind of grew up around
0: hospitality and food and serving customers. And then my mum found it such hard work that she tried to send us to really good schools and universities to go and become doctors and lawyers and stuff. And we kind of, tried to do a version of that but it went it really backfired and so we ended up you know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and we ended up back in hospitality and Mm -hmm. she hated it for a couple of years and now she loves it because we can talk to her about the business and she knows what she's talking about so and she (laughs) should and she
1: should be very proud i have had the privilege of pizza in naples uh and rome and sicily and uh, we need to dig deep into pizza together, please. Because I think if you would describe what makes a pizza a pizza, I, I learned from your book that, and I, I did know this the world, uh, the word itself translates in modern Italian to pie, but pizza has a lot of. Uh, deeper roots. I mean, Italy, of course, but the pita, the pizza. I mean, there's a lot surrounding the name and what makes a pizza.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every culture around the world has got some form of flatbread Mm -hmm. cooked over fire. I mean, this goes back thousands and thousands of years. I think if you're looking at the invention of the modern pizza, I think the most interesting thing I could tell you in the next 30 seconds would be that, like, in the late 1800s, pizza was invented because Queen Margarita of Savoy mm. was visiting Naples to visit them during the, the cholera pandemic. So it yes. was like a massive thing that a royal member of, you know, a member of the royal family was going to visit the city during a cholera pandemic. So she became this hero. But they were so bored of French luxurious food that she said, can you just make me something simple? So this guy called Raffaele Esposito um, created the first pizza and it was called the margarita because it was the red, white and green of the Italian flag. Mm. and it was tomatoes, basil and mozzarella, yes. and so she ate that, and it sort of became popular in Naples, but then what's interesting is that um, it then became, the reason it became really popular was because of, as it grew into the US, so as it turned of the century, we had the first pizza in New York, um, and when the New Yorkers tried that, they then came over to Italy during World War II. And they were like, "Where's this pizza that I've heard so much about?" So it was invented in in Naples, but it was popularized by the Americans and then brought back to Italy. Because if you went to Milan in 1934, you wouldn't find pizza; it wasn't there. So it was only it was the Americans that really made pizza what it is going to be, what it what it is today.
1: It's fascinating to me when it comes to I, I guess what you would call an American style pizza. Do you have a favorite? Because in the book, I love that you share, uh, kudos and interviews and acclaim for the pizza makers across the U S. Um, like Tony, I always say his last name wrong, Gemini, Gemini, Gemini. Thank you. Who has graced this show by the way, James? Uh, and Oh oh, yeah. I I mean, talk about a pizza King, right? But you really do give credit to those from LA to Chicago, to New York, um, to Chuck E. Cheese, I read about, um, that have <laughs> that have propelled the pizza world.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just such a big world, and everyone's got their different reference points. You know, for me, I have, A, a massive nostalgia of Domino's because it used to sponsor The Simpsons in the UK in the 90s, so, you know, all of those little TV <laughs> idents of, of Domino's. And, yes. and we became obsessed with wanting Domino's pizza because it was in all the Hollywood films we were watching, but we couldn't get it in the UK. And then when we started getting it in the UK, it... it it still now is my, 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 my dirty hangover secret on a Sunday. If I maybe embrace a few too many beers on a Saturday, a Domino's Pizza hits a spot that nowhere else can. So the Chicago uh, Tourism Board sent us out to Chicago for a four-day deep dive into deep dish pizza. Hmm. And uh, we did five deep dish pizzas a day for four days.
1: I was just going to say that had to be a very filling trip. I love a Chicago deep dish pizza, but I don't eat the next day.
0: I went with a preconception that I was going to hate it. And I was like, I'm going to prove myself that I hate deep dish. And the truth is, is, when you meet the people and you actually taste it, it's actually uh, so much lighter. Yes. And, you know, maybe you don't eat a whole thing. And actually, about three days in, we were having some beers and we, you know, there were a whole bunch of Chicagoans. And uh, they were like, I was like, so how many deep, you know, when, how often do you eat deep dish? And they were like, twice a
1: year oh james i could use a, a piece of pizza or three right about now we're continuing the culinary conversation on the best pizza around the world from the brothers elliot the new book pizza has it all grab a slice and come on back there's lots more in your radio right after this We're back and we're dishing. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're talking all things pizza. James Elliot, the Pizza Pilgrim, is here. I love the pizza facts that are um, sort of sort of buried in the middle of the book. I, I happen to love statistics. Um, the pepperoni pizza emoji you share is the most used emoji in the U.S. Anchovies are the least favorite pizza topping. Pepperoni, of course, the favorite. And I wonder uh, where you stand on pineapple. Please don't hang up the phone.
0: No, no. So we did three years ago when the UK Brexit <laughs> referendum was happening. Yes. Um, we decided to hold a referendum of our own. So we came up with this pizza called the Hawaii Knot. And it was, we, we, we were like, okay, if we're going to do a Hawaiian and we're going to put pineapple on pizza, how do we make it as delicious as possible? So we honey, we honey marinated the pineapples and then we fire roasted them in the oven. And then oh. we sliced them like carpaccio. And then we served them with anduja, which is this spicy Calabrian sausage. Yes. Uh, and sliced fresh jalapenos. And we basically held a ref- referendum. We put, put it on as a guest pizza in all of our pizza ears. And? and everyone got a voting slip. And uh, we, I think we sold about 4,000. We had about 4,000 votes. And it won 52% to 48%. Uh, so we, we, put, we put the issue to bed. Pineapple belongs on pizza. Thank yeah.
1: you. Okay, and so this interview will continue. No, I'm teasing. Um, I, I, I have always had a sweet palate. I love pineapple on pizza. I can't wait, though, to try mortadella and pistachio on pizza. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late, because James Elliott is here, along with his brother Tom... They have made a pizza pilgrimage uh, almost around the world to experience the best uh, of pizza everywhere. And they have documented not only the stories and the conversations and uh, the inspiration, but they've also shared the best recipes in a new book just released entitled Pizza, history, recipes, stories, people, places, and love. A book by the Pizza Pilgrims. Uh, it's truly inspiring. Okay, mortadella and pistachio, James? That's a knockout.
0: Mm-hmm. That is a knockout. Cause, because we use a pistachio butter. So if you like peanut butter, just, just take a moment for pistachio butter. Um, okay, let's kind of take salty, a moment. Wait,
1: wait, we have to take a moment. Okay. An actual moment. We yeah, have, an actu- we okay, had a cool. moment. That was a moment. Mm.
0: Uh, so we spread, instead of tomato sauce, we spread a, a pistachio butter base, oh so bright green, and then we bake it with buffalo mozzarella and some oh. chili, oh. and then when it comes out of the oven, we top it with wafer-thin slices of mortadella and oh. a few more toasted uh, pistachios. That
1: Unbelievable. Oh.
0: Also, it feels Christmassy, so it's always our Christmas special.
1: Yeah, I love that. It feels Christmasy,
0: Christmassy, and I don't really know why. But you know, that quite Christmassy.
1: Yeah, no, in the color. I, you know, we celebrate Hanukkah in my house, but I'll tell you, I, I will nod to you and toast you because I think I'm going to make that a Christmas pizza um, upcoming for Christmas. So we'll be we'll be talking about you more than we already are. Um, can we talk yeah. about frying pan pizza for a moment? That looks luscious. Saute pan, conventional oven. Do tell.
0: So. That's been the weirdest. In the 10 years that me and my brother have worked in pizza, that's been the strangest experience that we've had. Really? So as, as this thing called coronavirus happened um, yes. in about February or March, we got locked down in the UK. Everything yes. completely shut down, as did sure. the rest of the world. We came up with this idea called Pizza in the Post, which was basically um, a way of sending our pizza to everyone in the whole of the UK. And it, it comes in a pizza box. You open the pizza box, and then there's all these little deli pots inside, and it's got two of our 48-hour double-proof uh, dough balls, two portions of our tomato sauce, two portions of mozzarella, basil, olive oil, flour, and, and uh, that's it. And uh, basically what you do is you, it's, it's the way of replicating our wood-fired pizza oven at home just using a frying pan and a grill. So you put a frying pan on the heat, get it screaming hot, you stretch your dough, and you lay it into a dry frying pan with no oil. And that basically replicates The stone floor of our massive wood-fired oven.
1: It is the perfect companion for a pizza lover, which we all are. It's the Brothers Elliot, James Elliot, Tom Elliot, and it proves that pizza is happiness. So please, search Pizza Cookbook or Pizza Elliot. It will come right up on Amazon for you. Follow at Pizza Pilgrims, and next time you venture to the UK, I hope that for you all of you listening that your first spot and your first stop will be the same as mine and that will be to visit the pizza pilgrims james it was a pleasure uh, again congratulations on a beautiful work of art and for uh for keeping pizza top of mind for all of us i'm starving now absolutely starving <laughs> for pizza absolute that is.
0: pleasure and i, I run the instagram account so if any of you are coming to england for a pizza let me know and i'll uh I'll I'll make sure you get a good
1: seat. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Um, Stay safe and healthy and um, eat a pie from me, would you please? Will
0: do. Will do. All the best.
1: And so that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary nirvana. I hope that you found something delicious in the conversation, that I fed your soul or inspired you to do something delicious this week in the kitchen. If you're hungry for more, please visit chefjamie.com. And become a friend and a fan on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where you'll find my daily dish of inspiration at Chef Jamie Gwen. But don't go yet. Let me leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. There is stuffing in your future. Oh yes, I can't wait. The big feast is soon. Or maybe you're baking apple pies. And I have an easy way to keep apples from browning. No lemon. No problem. Fresh, beautiful, crisp apples of the season. Perfect for baking, right? Or that afternoon snack. But there is always one thing inevitable. They start to brown immediately and it's not appetizing at all. And while you can dunk them in a lemon solution, the well-known method for preventing apples from browning, I have another hack that I think keeps them even fresher. So if you don't want that tart flavor to your sweet apple... I soak apple slices in seltzer water to keep them from browning. It's really an effective way to prevent oxidation. And you just submerge them for five or 10 minutes or so. And in order to keep the apple slices from floating, I cover the bowl with a a paper towel and it weighs them down. Now I've put the theory to the test and I will tell you, uh, versus the lemon water, the seltzer soaked apple slices stayed white longer and so you will have beautiful apple pie or set them on a grazing board and walk away with peace of mind and in your stuffing, oh, they will highlight the goodness. It's a pretty great tip, I think, and I'll share it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so you don't forget. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening, wishing you and yours truly fabulous food and an extraordinary Thanksgiving feast. Please stay healthy and safe, and I hope you continue to eat well.